Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. There are things in life we have to do and others we get to do. Is your spiritual life an obligation or an opportunity? Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series The Gift and the Giver with this sermon entitled Treasure, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Matthew chapter 13 verse 44, and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You ever had a situation or uh, circumstance where you were ready to try something new, to, uh, to get out of perhaps an old habit or or something that you have possessed that you just think there's something out there that's better there's a different rhythm that's better. There's something that's, that's better than what I'm currently doing. And so you give it a shot. You try it only to find out that it's not better. It's, it's disappointing. It's actually even worse than what you were doing. I'll give you an example. A silly example perhaps, but it's, it's what's true in our house. We're coffee people. Rachel and I are. And uh, we used to be a people that, you know, drip coffee and with your, you know, with your thermos or whatever. But uh, years ago, out of convenience with four kids and just needing things quickly, we went to the pods. And uh, it's okay coffee. It's not bad. They've gotten better over the years, but it's purely mainly out of convenience. But a few months ago, uh, Rachel sent me a link to a coffee maker that looked amazing. It was, uh, I knew what she was up to. It was, it was uh, leading up to her birthday. So a little, little, little hint, this would be nice on our counter. So I bought it and it does look amazing. Looks fantastic on our counter. It's a, it's a stainless steel, beautiful coffee maker. Got a little tan edges to it. It's just awesome. It's, it's not very good at making coffee. Um, I mean, it makes it. A um, couple things. One, it takes a while. It's slow. I'm used to the quickness of the, of the pods. 
Uh, two, there is no burner. So once the coffee is made, if you don't drink it and pour it and drink it pretty quickly, it's not going to stay warm in the pot. That's weird, right? I mean, your coffee pots, your, your makers have, have burners, right? Uh, when you pour it, something with the spout, I can't figure it out. Every time I pour it, and I'm probably the problem, but it, it, it leaks down the side of the pot and it doesn't go well into the mug. And so what have I done, and mostly Rachel has done as well, is we've just gone back to what we were doing. Most mornings, we still go to the Keurig, not the coffee maker. So it looks great, but we don't use it. <laughs> Why would I tell you this? Well, it, it occurs to me that there, there are a number of people, a ton of people in the world, who are really fed up with what they have currently. And I'm not talking about what they possess materially. I'm talking about what they have inwardly. They're fed up with it. They're tired of it. They experience every day the reality of the brokenness of the world. They don't know to call, call it sin necessarily, but everything that sin does in the world that causes us what we experience in the way of brokenness and pain and so forth. They feel it deeply and they're thirsty for the transcendent. They're longing for something significant and so they, they give themselves to something new and that something new is religion. That something new is a religious belief structure, system, that they have this great hope will be the very avenue through which they get what they've longed for. And here's what happens. They, they give themselves to religion and religion is disappointing. It's not what they thought it was. And so, in a matter of time, they go back to what they knew before. Here's why. Every religious structure in the world, every single one outside of Christianity, offers something that ultimately is disappointing. And here's, here's what I mean. If you take every religious belief system in the world and strip it away, peel back the onion layers of how it's being presented on the surface, it's always going to come back to one fundamental thing at the core. And there's a number of things we could call it. I'll call it moral modification. Uh, you could call it human performance morally. You could call it behavior modification. You could, uh, you could call it moral reformation because what is it that we're longing for? We're longing to be reformed. And so what is the default of the human mind and heart is to set up systems and structures that make us feel better about ourselves through our moral performance. And every religious belief system in the world is founded upon that principle except Christianity. It's one of the evidences for why Christianity could not have come from man but rather came from God because we wouldn't come up with something this upside down. We wouldn't come up with something that actually says the complete opposite, that it's not based on your moral performance, your moral modification, your moral behavior or reformation, but based entirely upon the morality, if you will, of another in your place. So you actually don't do anything he's done at all. Here's the problem. Sadly, sadly, many churches, although they proclaim a gospel 
that points to the all-sufficient work of Jesus, the finished perfect work of the one who was perfect in our place. And the only response that we have is not to modify ourselves, not to change ourselves, not to try harder, but to believe upon the one who has done all the work. People who are hungry and thirsty for the transcendent come to our churches that proclaim that gospel and yet experience a pressure to modify morally. Meaning, what is it that is in in deep rivers of the heart, the flow of what we're preaching? What is the current of the good news? Is it ultimately, yeah, there's one who has saved you, but you better get your life together by not doing this and doing this and not doing this and doing this. If it's more the nots and the do's, then we're not pointing people to Jesus. Because religion most of the time, religion is is morality cloaked in religious behavior. And we don't need that. That actually crushes us. Because it only leads us to one of two places. Either we wrongly believe that we're doing a great job at morally reforming ourselves, and so we're self-righteous. Or we realize I can never do enough, and we live in despair. Neither one bring contentment, neither one bring peace. Both of those realities and those conclusions lead to more longing. So what do we need? Well, as I've hopefully made clear, we don't need moral modification cloaked in religiosity. Listen, this is what we need. What every human needs is we need spiritual transformation, uh, transformation. Deep, inward, heart-level things that we cannot change about ourselves inwardly in the deep rivers and the currents of our heart. We need spiritual transformation, not cloaked in religiosity, but saturated with the glory of Jesus. In other words, another way to say it is we don't need more rules to follow. We need a treasure who will transform, that we behold, that we give ourselves fully to. And something happens within us that can only be explained as a work of the living God. It's interesting, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what Abby read for us was the last little section of that chapter. I would encourage you, on your own time later today or this week, go back and read the whole chapter. I'm going to pull some things out of the chapter that we didn't read this morning. But it's, it's an incredible chapter, Paul doing something very, very profound. What he's doing is he's saying, he's drawing the attention of the Corinthian believers back to Exodus back to Moses, and he's, and he's making them remember, he's asking them to remember, remember what happened with Moses when he got the Ten Commandments, when the law was given? The law was given, and it came with such glory that Moses reflected that glory, that Shekinah glory of God, as it's called, on his face. 
Now, he, he didn't even really get to look at God. He asked God if his glory, he, he received the tablets. And then even after receiving the tablets, he said, this is, I still want more. Can you show me your glory? And God says, well, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, just this little crevice of a rock. And I'll pass by, but you'll only get to turn and see my, uh, the backside of me for just a split second. It's all he saw of the glory of God. And yet he shone for days in reflecting that glory as he came down the mountain. And he, he freaked the people out. They didn't know what to do with him. So he put a veil over his face so that they'd stop freaking out. And Paul is saying that, that, that law, the Ten Commandments, what we have called uh, the Mosaic law that God gave to his people came with such glory that that happened yet, yet compared to the glory that we now have through Christ in us, the Spirit of God in us, it's really no glory at all. Because the glory of God in us now, through the Spirit of God living within us, through faith in Jesus, far exceeds that glory. I'm going to give you four observations in this text, four basic but critical observations. First one is this. Seeking for life through the law brings death. Seeking for life through the law brings death. Again, it's our, it's our, it's our MO, it's, it's, it's our default setting that if we're going to get God to like us and approve of us, we need to get better. We need to improve ourselves. We need to morally modify who we are over the course of a, ser a series of times so that two things happen. I feel better about me and God feels better about me. The problem is, as I've already made this, the case for, it will never end there. There's no, there's no amount of good moral life that we could produce, inward or outward, that would ever be enough to please God because our issue is not our behavior, our issue is our heart. Our issue is not what we do, our issue is our nature. We're born into sin. We're born with the very nature that, that uh, from the moment of our conception, even as the scriptures tell us, we were in sin. So we can't overcome that with any amount of self-improvement. But we try, we long for it, we, we, we give it everything that we have, but it ends up in death. Moral modification, by the way, moral modification has me at the center. It has ourselves at the center, has self at the center because it's, it's this, just this endeavor to to, like I just said, to feel better about self and to convince ourselves that God feels better about me. But spiritual transformation that can only come through belief in Jesus, the substitute who was perfect in our place, the substitute who took the penalty of our sin for us, and the substitute who defeated the penalty of sin, death, in our place as well, and rose from the dead, through faith in him, all of that becomes ours and we receive through the spirit of the living God now living within us a transforming work. Not at the behavior level, but at the heart level. As the scriptures like to say, we are remade. That's what that word transform is getting at. We are made new, remade, brought to life. Sadly, too often, our churches are filled with people 
who have not embraced a life of spiritual transformation, but rather as, as Christian Smith, the sociologist, uh, coined in 2005, we have embraced just this static reality of moralistic therape- therapeutic deism. We're moral, it makes us feel better, we wrap God around it. But we want, we need deep, heart-level, spiritual transformation. What do the scriptures teach us about the law? I'm, I'm being pretty hard on the law, but the scriptures actually teach us that the law, the Ten Commandments and all the law that goes with that, is good. I mean, it came with such glory that Moses' face shone. It's good. It it shows us the heart of God. It shows us the standard of God and his holiness. But ultimately, even though the law is good, it kills. In verse 6 of chapter 3 that we didn't read, Paul says that. He says, for the letter, he's talking about the letter of the law, kills. In verse 7, he calls it the ministry of death. In verse 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. But didn't we just say that the law is good in and of itself? Yes, it is. But what does the law do? When we don't realize our sin until we look at the law, and the law condemns us, it shows us, it exposes our sin. It reveals us to us who we really are. And it's not pretty. And so it kills. Second point, only the Spirit of God gives life. If seeking for life through the law brings death, how do we even begin to find life? Well, only the Spirit of the living God can give it. In verse 3 of this chapter, it said that God writes on our hearts. And he says this, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's hearkening back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where these prophets had promised that there would be a day when the Spirit would be poured out. And when that happens, our hearts would move from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And and why would that be? Well, because God is doing something in us that only He can do through Jesus. So I just want to be very clear about this. What happens when you believe upon Christ? What we had read for us just a moment ago, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What does that mean? Well, it means that we now can see with eyes of faith. And what does that mean? Well, it means that now we see, I could never morally modify myself enough to ever be pleased with myself or have God be pleased with me, but there was one who did it for me, and so I believe upon him. And when that happens, don't miss this, when that happens, upon that turning to the Lord, the veil is removed, and the Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit indwells us, God himself in us, doing a work that only he can do in turning our hearts towards him, that we begin to desire what he desires. We begin to love what he loves. We begin to hate what he hates. We we become a people slowly, but surely because of the faithfulness of God and his spirit within us, who are being made more like him. 
Only the Spirit gives life. Jesus said this much. He said that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. He, he promised in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And how does that life come? Jesus also said something that was really, really outrageous. He said, it's better, he said to the disciples, it's better that I go because if I don't go back to the Father, then the Spirit won't come. The Helper, the Spirit won't come. And it's better for you that I go because when the Spirit comes, then He will indwell you and give you the ability to do everything that I have done and even more. The Spirit, only the Spirit of God gives life. In verse six of chapter three of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this just as blatantly as possible. He says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He had called the, he had called the law the ministry of, of death. Now it's the ministry of the spirit. In verse nine, he had said that the law is the ministry of condemnation. Now it's the ministry of righteousness. Why is it the ministry of righteousness? Because when we believe upon Christ, his righteousness, his perfect moral record, is given to us, attributed to us as though it were our own, all through faith, not through anything that we have actually done to morally improve ourselves. And he begins to make us new, but that saving work, that saving work and the making new is a work of God. Where else do we see language like this? Romans 8, 1 and 2, famous verse, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Similar language that we see here in 2 Corinthians. There's no condemnation. The ministry of condemnation through the law is no longer over you. You're no longer under it. You've been pulled out from underneath the condemnation of the law and you've been set free from the law of sin and death through Jesus and the spirit of life. Now I want you to think, whenever we use language of set free, we have to ask two questions. First, and we've already established it, what are we set free from? And, and, and we've said it, we're, we're set free from the ministry of death, the letter that kills, the ministry of condemnation, from the law of sin and death. We're set free from those things, and that reality, just that one reality of what we're set free from is enough for us to praise God for all of eternity. It's incredible that he would be so gracious as to set us free from those things. But in his infinite grace and love and mercy and kindness towards us, it's not just that he set us free from those things, he set us free for something even more. In other words, he doesn't just set us free from the law of sin and death just so that we kind of remain in this static limbo, but he says, I'm gonna set you free from those things so that I can do something with you and to you and for you and through you that will absolutely blow your mind. And watch what it is. In verse 18, or 17, in verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit. Now, just in that one little phrase, there's a lot there that I don't have time to go into, but Trinitarian implications. The Lord, Jesus, is the spirit. 
right? Okay, so the Lord is the Spirit. Well, the, so the God, the Son, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, lot to be processed there. But Paul is essentially uniting the Godhead in the sense of that the Spirit glorifies the, the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. And the, and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. And if that confused you, I'm sorry, but it's, it's profound. All right, anyway. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Remember, there is freedom from all that terrible news that we're under the law of condemnation and sin and death and all those things. But watch verse 18, watch this. And we all, if you've believed upon Jesus, and we all with unveiled face, what we used to be blinded to, we're not blinded to anymore, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here's what I want you to hear. We're set free from those things, but we're set free for something greater, and it's this, to be transfixed and to be transformed. We're set free from those things so that first we can be transfixed with a new vision on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you keep reading in the beginning verses of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses that exact phrase, that the, that the God of this world, Satan, the enemy, has blinded the, the mind of unbelievers, meaning we, the veil is over our face, just like Moses, and we can't see the glory of God. But God in his grace, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and what do we see now? We have the freedom now. And we have the vision now to be transfixed on the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What are we staring at? Who are we staring at? Well, we're staring at the very one who is love, infinitely compassionate, infinitely kind, merciful beyond measure, gracious beyond our wildest imaginations, just at every turn, perfect in every way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is who we're staring at. How do we stare at him? Right here. The full revelation of God is in these pages and Jesus is on every page. You wonder why you're not amazed at the transfixation of your eyes on the glory of Jesus. I would say, are you in your word? Are you in the Bible? Not, not obligatorily, not condemning you, but I'm just saying the glory of God is in this book in such a way that is anointed by God to enliven hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's in the church of God, as broken as we are, as messed up as we are, as much as we hurt each other, God did something mysterious in allowing us to actually experience the glory of God in his bride. And so it's in his Bible, it's in his bride that we behold the glory of Jesus. And what do we do? We stand in awe. We are transfixed on the glory of God in the face of Jesus, but it's not just that we stand in awe, it's that there's a work being done as we stand in awe with eyes of faith. And that work is a work of transformation. What we long for, what we, what we want to accomplish through moral modification and can never achieve, God does through spiritual transformation in the heart through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus. And he transforms us, what? Into the image of who we're staring at. As we look 
with eyes of faith at Jesus and behold his glory, we're beholding, but we're also becoming like him. He's making us more, let me say it a better way, he's remaking us back into the image of him. What did we lose at the fall? In Genesis 3, when we chose sin over the glory of God, and I say we because we fell dead in the garden with Adam and Eve, we inherited their same sinful residue. What did we lose? Well, we, lose, we lost a ton of things, but probably, uh, primarily the biggest thing that we lost was that we lost the sharing in the glory of God when sin came into the world, into our hearts. What is Jesus doing? Christ is redeeming us, and part of what he's doing is he's remaking us through the power of the Spirit back into that image of Jesus that shares in that glory. Meaning, we find our value, our glory, is actually no glory at all because it's all about him. We're set free from all that. We're set uh, free for the opportunity, the the assurance of to be transfixed and to be transformed. Lastly, I, I don't think I gave you the third point. The third point was the life the Spirit gives is a life of freedom. Fourth, the spiritual transforming ministry of the Spirit is a work of glory. I just talked about that, but I want you to see that very last phrase in verse 18. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I said earlier that moral modification, moral modification puts me at the center. Self at the center. Spiritual transformation puts God at the center. It's all about his glory. He's the one who does it. All of this is from the Lord. All of it. He does all the work. He gets all the glory. We take none of it. And the glory that we share in now in the face of Jesus as we behold and become like him, as we are transfixed and transformed, is a glory that far surpasses any previous glory, even that of the law that caused Moses' face to shine. Now, you may be thinking, okay, what does this have anything to do with giving? Isn't this Pledge Sunday? Here's here's how it connects, at least in my mind. When it comes to giving, Christians very often ask the wrong questions. And the questions that we ask are most often rooted in the law. Here's what I mean. The, the, The posture of our hearts is typically... When it comes to a Pledge Sunday type thing, how much do I have to give? What what is the tithe? Is it 10%? Is it more? Is it less? The New Testament doesn't seem to define that for us. What do you think, Pastor? We ask the wrong questions. We ask questions that are rooted in legality and duty. The the major problem is that giving is like any other area of the spiritually transformed life. The Christ-driven life. It's any other, it's it's motivated not out of legality, but of love. 
It's motivated not out of, it's driven out of, not by duty, but delight. It's, it's the staring at the glory of God in the face of Jesus and responding with, you get it all. You did it all. You saved all of me in my broken mess. I did nothing. So my response is, you get it all. You get all the glory. You get all of my life. And part of getting all of my life is you get the say in, in the money part of my life. You do, not me. If you're Lord, you're Lord over it all. So what do you want, God? Not what do I have to give, what do I get to give? What do you want? Tell me, I wanna to give to you what you are calling me to give, even if it makes no sense to me. Because you're worthy of it all. Matthew 13, 44 illustrates this perfectly for us. Jesus tells a remarkable story in one verse, one parable in one verse. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Here's the point of the story. Kingdom of God is like a treasure in the field. Who's the treasure? Jesus. He's the king of the kingdom. When we find him, or rather when he finds us in the midst of all of our brokenness and sin and disarray, we behold him in all of his glory and we are so transfixed on the value of the king who is the treasure of the kingdom that we respond with gladness, with joy, because his value so uh, far exceeds any other value of any other treasure that we've come across and we are so deeply satisfied in him that we say, I'll sell all and I'll do it in joy. Now, I'm not saying that I have any expectation, nor does God have any expectation that you will give all your money this morning. It's not the point. The point is, where's your heart? What's going on in here? God is not gonna be pleased with you based on how much you give or how much you don't give. God is pleased with you for one thing. Have you beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus and trusted him by faith and been spiritually transformed? That spiritual transformation work is a, is a messy one. You may say, Jeff, I can't remember the last time I delighted in God, but I know I love him and trust him. Okay, that's part of it. Feelings come and go. But God is delighted in you through Christ. I'll, I'll close with this, and this is a, an illustration I've used a lot over the years, and some of you are already tired of hearing it. Um, I'm an Alabama graduate. I've only got so many things I can think through, right? Um, I love my university. I have to make fun of it because y'all make fun of it, and it endears me to you, right? Uh, anyway. Um, Ephesians 5.18 in my adult life has become an anchor verse for me. And it simply says this. It just says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You may hear that and go, wow, that's your anchor verse? One of your anchor life verses? I've got to get you some new verses, man. 
Here's why. For the longest time in my life, I only knew and really cared about the first part of that verse. I was raised in a cultural context in the Deep South where only the first part of that verse was emphasized. And drunkenness is a sin, but why? What's Paul doing? Why, why is he, what's he doing? Well, he's making a comparison. He's saying, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because when you're drunk with wine, alcohol is in control. And when alcohol is control, in control, you aren't doing things that you would normally do. You do things you normally wouldn't do. You say things you normally wouldn't say. You go places you normally wouldn't go. You risk things you normally wouldn't risk. You give things you normally wouldn't give. But it's all leading to debauchery. But the first part of the verse is setting up the second and the main point of what Paul is trying to say, which is, don't, don't do that. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be drunk on the Spirit. And when the Spirit of God, the very one who's transforming us, is in control, what do we do? We go places we normally wouldn't go. We do things we normally wouldn't do. We say things we normally wouldn't say. We risk things we normally wouldn't risk. We give things we normally wouldn't give. We pray things we normally wouldn't pray. And the list goes on and on. So let's be a spirit-filled people who do things we normally wouldn't do and say and go and risk and give. Things that ordinarily we wouldn't. But the Spirit leading and controlling takes us there and amazes us in the process. Father, would you bless this time now as we set aside a little time to consider how you might be leading. And we thank you that you are the one who transforms our hearts. Certainly behavior flows out of transformed hearts, but forgive us for getting it backwards. For thinking that we can modify ourselves such that our hearts could change. We need you to do the work in us that only you can. Make us glad, delighting in you, staring in the face of you, Jesus, being made more like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.